When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, founder and medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic in Denver, Colorado. The Gaudiani Clinic is a health at every size informed provider that embraces treating people of all shapes and sizes with eating disorders and disordered eating. Today, Dr. Gaudiani is going to talk to us about family life with eating disorders. And what I'm really curious about is not only how people manage disordered eating in families, but also how do we prevent this from happening? Can we prevent it from happening? I'm not sure. Um, And just what kind of healthy messages can we send to our families about food and body image and self-care? So I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Gaudiani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm so delighted to. Um, I was wondering if we could just start by having you talk a little bit about the Gaudiani Clinic and sort of what got you to decide to start it. I would love to. So I grew up in Northern California and went back east to school. And when I was in med school, my middle sister arrived at college. And we had been talking uh, a lot in advance about how she had suddenly gotten really worried about her body and about food. And at the time, I knew nothing about eating disorders. I just basically said, I love you. Don't take it out on your body. Let me sort of support you in eating enough. And when she got to college, it was clear she had developed a full-blown eating disorder. And so all I knew was that my unconditional love was unlikely to be sufficient. And I was really grateful when she got a therapist. And she ultimately had bulimia for many years. And it was really scary. Um, And I'm immensely proud that she's been in full recovery. She's been recovered since her mid-20s. But that was sort of my first exposure, yeah, to... What does she say about what you're doing now? Oh, she's really proud. She's proud she inspired me. Right. Um, She's grateful that there's been redemption out of her years of struggle. That's awesome. I feel like that happens a lot in families sometimes too. When until it hits your own family, 
you maybe kind of know that there's something going on or you pay or if it's a friend, you know, but you pay more attention once it hits a little closer to home. Isn't that true? Yeah. It, it inspired the rest of my career. And I didn't know that at the time, actually. You know, I went into internal medicine. I moved out to Denver with my husband and then toddler daughter in 2007 and started working at the inner city teaching hospital as a hospitalist, uh, meaning an internist who takes care of hospitalized patients. And then a year into my employment, the head physician of the hospital, who unbeknownst to me is the world expert in the medical complications of eating disorders, wrote out an email saying, who wants to help me? formally manage and expand the only inpatient medical hospital unit in the country dedicated to critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa who can't get care anywhere else. And, you know, as the oldest of three girls and as the mom, I was pregnant at the time with my second daughter, I was like, yep, me. Right. And um, that changed the course of my profession. And I helped run That's that awesome. unit for eight years and then opened my own outpatient clinic uh, in 2016 with an intention of being part of a non-hierarchical, multidisciplinary outpatient team for individuals who didn't need uh, those higher levels of care, but for whom medical complications were really impeding their recovery work. Well, and I noticed you're also doing telemedicine. That's a new, I mean, that's where technology is really helping us all out here, where, you know, you could live in a remote area and still have access to excellent care. It's so true. It's been really new for me, and I wasn't sure how it would feel. But it's actually been awesome. You know, we're more used to interacting on screens now as a society. And so patients come to me in person for their first visit, and I'm now fully medically licensed in 20 states and growing as more patients join. Uh, and then I can just, you know, see them from the comfort of their home or work for follow-ups. And it actually works okay. That's great. One of the things that caught my eye in, on your website was just um, how you describe your clinic as treating eating disorders and disordering, disordered eating. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and just... I think that there's so many ideas that we have about the person with an eating disorder. You know, maybe you have an image in your mind of what that looks like. And um, I'm just wondering if you could explain a little bit about the nuances between those. Or if there is a separation. Maybe there's not. No, that's such a smart question, Megan. So a lot of people, when they think eating disorder, think someone who is emaciated and eats nothing. And it turns out that couldn't be further from the truth. There are a number of eating disorders as diagnosed with specific criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 5, the DSM-5. And those are classically anorexia nervosa, where people are underweight and fear food and, and have distortions in their body appearance. There's bulimia nervosa, where people binge and then purge by throwing up, by laxative abuse, by diuretic abuse. There's binge eating disorder, which turns out to be the commonest of the eating disorders and has an almost equal gender mix, where people oftentimes restrict calories during the day, often in the service of a diet that may well have been prescribed by a physician, and then binge eat to the point of uncomfortable fullness. And then there's a whole world of what's called atypical eating disorders, where People might do all of the restrictive and exercising behaviors of somebody with anorexia, 
but they don't happen to be underweight. And these are the patients that really get missed. Okay. It turns out that their mortality rate is just as high as somebody with bulimia. They have double the death rate of their peer who doesn't have an eating disorder. And anorexia carries the highest death rate of any mental illness with a six to ten times death rate of someone without an eating disorder. So how do families actually identify when something like this is happening? If it's, if I feel like, you know, we look for this outward symbol that, that there's a problem. How do we know that there's a problem if it's not, if it's not what our assumption of what that would look like? It's a great question in particular because all of society is pretty disordered now. And as I recall, I actually didn't respond to your prior question. Disordered eating means you sort of have elements of some of this stuff, but not quite rising even to the level of an atypical formal eating disorder. You are really miserable in your body image on a regular basis. You intermittently diet. You tend to be drawn towards fad diets, uh, or you know you jump on the latest cleanse, so-called cleanse bandwagon. Um, you're overly focused on health outcomes as they relate to food and your body shape and size. And the problem is, like, that's society. I know. I'm like, isn't that called being a woman? I'm sorry. <laughs> what am I? <laughs> what? That's so right. Um, and, and this is one of the great toxicities in mm -hmm. Western, well, that's actually around the world, unfortunately, now, but in society is that women are, and, and increasingly men as well, are valued based on the size and shape of their bodies. And in fact, doctors have a role to play in this too, because doctors use our own internalized size stigma in assessing patients. I know, as an internist who's a specialist in eating disorders, that I can't look at someone and tell based on their body shape and size whether they're healthy or ill, except at certain extremes on either side. By contrast, a lot of doctors will praise someone in clinic for losing weight when they've actually been going through the kind of behaviors that in a thinner person, the doctor would express grave concern and compassion and immediately make referrals to a therapist and a dietitian. This is a big problem. Yes. And as a result of this being so pervasive in society, families can miss their very own loved ones entering into risky behaviors. So the stuff to watch for. Stuff to watch for in your loved ones, and this could be kids watching their adult parents, it could be parents watching their kids, siblings, cousins, etc. is people who stop eating socially as much. There's always an excuse for why, oh, I just ate, or no, I don't want this, or yeah, I've developed a bunch of food intolerances. It's people who've become more withdrawn emotionally. Eating disorders are not just about food by any means. And so someone who's more reserved, who's more closed off, might have an eating disorder. Then again, people with bulimia nervosa are often really outgoing and stay in relationship despite binging and purging. So that's not a fail-safe. You know, somebody who leaves the table and goes immediately to the bathroom could be a telltale sign. 
if weight changes dramatically one direction or another, that can be a sign. But our bodies also have ways of protecting our body weight, which we developed in what I call our cave person brain 200,000 years ago as we were evolving to protect us from starvation. So their weight might not change to their you know dismay. They're like, geez, I'm going through all these behaviors and my weight's not even changing. Um, so I think, you know, listening to comments from friends, if a friend calls and says, you know, I'm really worried about your daughter, listen to that, mm-hmm. don't blow it off. Okay. These are all the things to watch for. Okay. And what about, this is one of the things I did your introduction and was talking about. One of the things that I was really curious about is now that I have my own kids, you know, you want it to be different. And what can we do to try to create more of a healthy model or healthy atmosphere in our own homes? How do we, and I hate to stigmatize it and be like, how do we prevent this? But it doesn't sound fun, you know? So how do we make this something that we can avoid? Or is it avoidable? Is it something that just certain people are more drawn to as a coping mechanism? It's one of my favorite questions to answer because I do like to empower families who are the good guys. You know, no family is perfect, but families are always the good guys in the recovery process and in the prevention process. And families are ultimately the experts in their own children. So yes, let's empower them. I'm actually just finishing writing my first book, which is called Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. How cool. It will be out with Rutledge in the fall of 18. Wonderful. Um, I just sort of finished writing this section, so it's fresh on my brain. Oh, good. Um, There's a couple of things that families can do, basically, to create an environment in the home where their child's body is safe. And by that, I mean, out in the world, children of all ages are bombarded with images of predominantly thin, white, cis-privileged sort of heroes. And that's just not everybody. (laughs) You know, celebrating body diversity is a vital aspect of, of the reality of being a human being. And so we're not going to be able to protect our kids from the outside world, from the ads they see, from, uh, you know, the the comments here. What we can do is make home, home base, where they're safe. And by that, I mean, I encourage parents, don't talk about your body. Don't talk about it negatively or positively. Just don't talk about it. Don't moan if there's a body part you don't like. Don't celebrate if you've lost weight don't comment on other people's bodies either it's really common for just loving well-meaning parents to say oh look at that athlete you know look how huge his muscles are look how ripped he is he's clearly healthy hoping that this sort of it promotes at its very best a health message but the fact is people can be healthy at a wide range of body shapes and sizes So we've got to take the focus off body appearance and go to focusing on behavior and body performance instead. I encourage parents not to talk about exercise in order to create a body change. But, you know, anytime my kids see me working out, I'll say, yeah, mommy wants to work out because she wants to be strong to play with you. 
it's not like so I can change the appearance of my body. I tell my um, kids it's so I can be mentally sane. And even then, I'm just <laughs> scratching the surface, like just hoping for sanity. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I recommend that food not have anything that's specifically called bad or specifically called good, um, but rather that families, whenever possible, eat in a balanced way, modeling moderation together. Okay. And that everyone, you know, within reason, I have two children who are picky in completely different ways, um, sort of eats more or less the same stuff. And, you know, for instance, my kids have a sweet of the day. It's a sweet of the day. So whatever time of day, it could be after breakfast, they're like, you know what, I want my sweet of the day. Great. This teaches them budgeting. Okay. All right. So that they get whatever their sweet is. Maybe in this case, it's they grab some stuff out of their Easter basket. Oh, does this look about right? Yeah, it looks about right for a sweet of the day. And they eat it. And then, you know, if later that night they're like, wait, I forgot that it was going to be so-and-so's birthday and I'm having cake. Like, oh, well, great. You chose to have your sweet of the day earlier. Next time you remember if there's something that's going on that's formal, then there's always tomorrow. You can have a piece and keep it for tomorrow. I like that idea. So, you know, there's nothing that's, like, evil. Sugar's not bad. Right. There's just some foods that are eaten more in moderation and others that, you know, you can fill up on as much as you want. I think these are some of the lessons that actually take people away from bad and good, because our understanding of bad and good also continues to shift. Um, one of the funniest examples right now is everyone seems to think coconut oil is this marvelous superfood. And actually, studies have just emerged from the American Heart Association that it has twice the saturated fat as lard, and that they explicitly recommend not consuming it. Goodness. So, like, the, the whole sort of, this is a superfood, we gotta have, nope. Stay away from fads. Just generally focus on, like, balanced nutrition, plenty of color, plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, a general balance of the food groups without needing to count them, and, like, eating for satisfaction and joy and to know when you're full and then to excuse yourself. And this is all just such important information because I think generations before us haven't talked as much about this like we were almost more susceptible to the fads because we didn't understand that that's what they were I remember in college I thought snack wells I mean I should just eat like 10 boxes of these and I'll be good I mean it just was and I I you know thought I was doing the right thing or like a giant bowl of frozen yogurt with like sugary cereal on top and now you know but we just didn't know and I mean I, I think we always knew vegetables were good but just, yeah. I think that there wasn't this kind of conversation that, you know, just to be aware of these fads and that that's what they are and you can only sustain them for a certain period of time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's very few, in particular, women who talk to each other in these sensible, moderate ways because women are trained to talk negatively about our bodies it's one of the ways that we try to cover from society thinking we're overly confident. So if a woman gets a compliment, she often responds with a self-deprecating, you know, oh, well, no, but I'm, I'm so bad at this, or oh, but I look X, Y, or Z. we got to remember who's listening to us, you know, and, and that's true if you're 
kid, as my his, mine has done, grabs your stomach and goes, Mommy's big belly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and that's your fault, but maybe that's not the right message either, though. But that's the well, stuff that comes in your head because the, it is you know, the stuff that comes in your head, exactly. Yeah. And, and in fact, I've had to take a deep breath because I'm, I'm so nerdy about this topic and because it runs in my family and eating disorders are, you know, genetic um, to a certain extent by the inherited temperamental traits from family members that what I'm thinking in that moment is socialized into me. This is true also when your child asks you, mommy, am I fat? Take a deep breath and before you reassure them, for instance, that they're not. Realize that that would actually be engaging in size-phobic culture. No, honey, you're not fat. You're beautiful. Excuse me? That would imply that fat can't be beautiful. Interesting. Yeah. Instead, ask questions. Okay. Nicole, what do you mean by that question? Who's talking about fat in your world? Tell me more. And then you can be like, oh, because somebody said someone was fat, and I wondered what that means. <laughs> you know, right. like, or I wondered where, where, you know, like, just be responsive to their actual question, and don't make this a moment where you actually start inputting these stigmas into their beautiful little heads. Right. Um, you know, my tummy, by contrast with my children's, is enormous. Of course it is. I'm an adult. And so to see, like, yeah, mommy's tummy is bigger than yours. It sure is. I love you. Mm-hmm. That's all you have to say. Okay. You know, no, you don't have good. to defend. <laughs> it's not that big. It's hard. It's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. But yeah. I think in that moment, we actually have the opportunity to say, in this family, we honor body diversity. Or depending on the maturity of your child, people come in all different shapes and sizes. And all of those are good. And everyone's just different. We don't care as much about what people look like in our family. We care that they're eating good, nourishing foods to make their bodies strong and that they have fun with their bodies. These are beautiful messages that then sort of inoculate our children against the appearance, superficial, focused commentary that they then do here on the schoolyard amongst peers. And they think to themselves, oh, that's not how my mom thinks about that. Right. Well, and it sounds like the work begins with us as the parents or as the adults where we have to get it right in our own minds, you know, and that might be a process for us too. It might be. Yeah. It might require somebody to seek a therapist. <laughs> right. Because diet culture is endemic in the United States. Women and, and men too increasingly are told they should go on diets from young ages. There's the talk of the obesity epidemic. I'm not denying that certain medical diseases, of course, emerge from and alongside higher body weight. These are complex processes. And what we know from the data is that when children feel body shame, they're more likely to develop disordered eating. If children are placed on diets, I include adolescents among children, they're more likely to develop eating disorders and higher body weight later on. That makes sense. So so the answer is not to be like, hey kid, you're getting a little chubby. Maybe we need to cut back on the cookies some. It's just to quietly observe in your mind, I wonder if my kid is emotionally eating, I wonder if stuff's going on, or 
is this just what his body's meant to look like right. right now? Kids go through growth spurts. Sometimes they put weight on their tummies first. Fine. You know, it's not, though, drawing attention to the appearance. It's just leaning in a little bit more to their emotional needs and to how those may or may not be manifesting through food consumption. Oh, I like that. The thing that I didn't realize, too, was that during puberty, many kids put on that extra fat for what their body needs to do to go through puberty. I did, I, no one ever told me that. No one ever told me that either. Yeah. That would have been so helpful It would me. have been so helpful. So, yeah. Yeah. Girls have to gain between 30 and 50 pounds to emerge from a child's body into an adult woman's body. And a lot of that weight starts around their middle which is what I think of as Mother Nature's checking account. You know, where you sort of stash something and then you're going to use it. It stays liquid. Okay. Um, because you need to use those stored calories to do final growth spurts and to turn on sex hormones and to create whatever shape and size, curve-wise, was written in the genetics for you. That's just at an age where... You know, some tiny percent of girls spring fully formed into some sort of idealized body. But the vast majority of us, A, never possess that idealized body, and B, sure as shit don't possess it between the ages of 13 and 16. No. And so family commentary at this age can be super toxic or super protective. Like the kid comes home and is like, oh, my clothes don't fit. I look weird. My proportions are wrong. And just to be like, I know. I love you so much. It's a hard age and you're gorgeous to me. And someday you're going to be gorgeous to the people you want to be gorgeous for. Hang in there, baby girl. Right, right. It is. It's, uh, it's, that's, that's a tough little zone right there. Do you notice that that's an age where things start to ramp up? Or is there a specific age range where you notice that the patterns start to emerge and become more entrenched? Yeah, that's the age. That's the age, Adolescence yeah. is the peak time for emergence of eating disorders. And we're seeing more from boys, too. You know, boys look different, typically. Um, they're not so much focused on thinness. They're focused on muscularity and being cut. Okay. What's interesting about this is that the commercial world having saturated women for generations now with messages to make us feel insecure in order to buy their products is now targeting boys more. Mm -hmm. And that is true when you look at, for instance, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker action figures from the 1970s when I played with them, when they just looked like normal little plastic dudes, similar in proportion to the actors who played the roles. But the re-release of those action figures in 2000, if you Google it, you can find a picture. Same actor, but suddenly they have tiny waists, enormous shoulders, zero body fat, huge thighs. And you're like, friends, I'm pretty sure this is still Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. What happened in 30 years? Right. What happened was a society more focused on body image in men. Mm. Similarly superhero costumes for our little boys are increasingly coming padded with six packs, delts, and pectoral muscles. Right. And what's interesting about that, I don't have any data on this, is to me that teaches our little boys that their own perfect little bodies can't be super or magical unless they look like 
this zero body fat, incredibly muscular figure. Mm, that's so true. And I haven't, no, I mean, I think I'm so keenly aware of the messages for women, but I think, and I have boys, you know, I, I should be paying more attention to that as well because I have had never thought twice about the padding in the costumes. But that makes a lot of sense, you know? It makes a lot of sense that it's sort of suggesting that what's underneath there is not enough, so we'll, we'll help you out. Yeah, what if we were giving little girls the message the oh. only way they could attain power was by putting on costumes with boobs and hips. Oh, no, yes. Ooh. Don't even say that, because then somebody's going to well, do it. There's people that are weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so true. Um, what about different ethnic um, groups? Have you noticed a shift in who eating disorders or disordered eating is, what groups it's becoming prevalent in, or has that shifted over time? That's a great question, because... Stereotypically, the individual we think of as having an eating disorder is white, wealthy, thin, and anxious. And there's plenty of people, of course, who do fit that description. But increasingly, what we're realizing is that our own white-centric society has caused us to do studies only in people who look like us or appeal to us, and I include myself in that because I can name my privilege as being white, thin, cisgender, and financially comfortable, as well as well-educated and, and able. So when we actually start to look, we find that eating disorders are prevalent in any nation that has you know, any sort of first world perks but also in places you wouldn't expect it. So for instance, there was a fascinating study done in Fiji by Dr. Becker years ago. She went, before TV was ever in Fiji, and she observed the Fijian culture around food and body image. Fijians are typically larger bodied. There are often times of food shortage, so that you know when the fish do come in, everybody gathers to bring them in and to be eat and to survive malnutrition. Family units are strong. People live in close quarters so that there's not room to purge. She thought, you know, this is a society that should be really safe from the ravages of eating disorders because of these generations of protective uh, aspects. Well, she went back three years after TV came to Fiji, and she was horrified to discover that 10% of women were now purging their food. And it turned out that it's not that they necessarily wanted to be thinner or thought that thinner was more beautiful, but the, the sort of hypothesis was that they saw, you know, soap operas, etc., from basically cultures that they had never dreamed of, and they thought, that looks powerful. Hmm. If I have a body that looks like her body, maybe I get powerful too. Oh, wow. And so it wasn't protective. And... Another really vital piece of data just emerged out of Texas, actually, where uh, a food bank uh, chain that's very, uh, it's like a top food bank, um, was approached by researchers who said, we know in other studies that food deprivation through dieting or through eating disorder restriction causes people 
to have brain changes where they become ravenous for food. They seek out extra food and it can make their brains sort of malfunction when it comes to their perception of their bodies and food. I wonder if this is true in people who don't have enough food because of poverty. So they partnered with this food bank and they did interviews for the people in line for the food bank, a lot of them, 500 people. And they not only interviewed what their, you know, overall salary was, how many people were in their home, but also actual eating disorder questionnaires. Mm. And to their sort of holy moly moment, they discovered that proportionate with how poor a family was and how food insecure they were, they had that much higher eating disorder behaviors, like binging, purging. Restricting body dissatisfaction. And they were like, it was just sort of a chilling moment to realize for all the people we currently feel we're not adequately treating and diagnosing and taking care of, all we've been looking at are the ones who have the ability to pay for treatment. Wow. I had no idea. Is this is this new? This is new. I mean, this is newer information. Wow. Yeah, this is in the last year or two. And what's crazy, too, is that that information doesn't actually spread that quickly because no. those aren't probably the people who are paying for commercials and paying for advertising and paying for, you know what I mean, the magazines That's that people exactly are paying. That's exactly right. That's exactly That's right. Crazy. And, you know, here's where social justice issues come into this strongly, and it's been a joy for me to learn, and I continue to learn about social justice considerations. But, you know, it's in the poorest neighborhoods with the least white citizens that, um, you know, the cheapest, least nourishing food is offered, these food deserts where they don't have access to a grocery store with fresh produce, and where the most ads for, you know, get slim quick, or, you know, all of these different mixed messages are being foisted upon people of color, and those who are poorer, it's just one of those realities that we're going to have to come to as a country. That's very eye-opening. I had no idea. Wow. What, um, one of the things I was curious about, too, is what is something that you have found is helpful if you're supporting a family or supporting someone who is going through recovery? What, what tends to be the most helpful as a helper? a multidisciplinary team usually comprised at least of a dietitian and a therapist sometimes a psychiatrist sometimes like me an internal medicine physician can be really helpful for families especially when they find individuals to work with their child who believes in the positive power of the family you know this is it, it is old news and wrong news to blame families for eating disorders we have a role in preventing them. We have a role in establishing safe, you know, safe homes. The fact is eating disorders happen. And so making families warm, positive partners, even when change has to occur, it's not that they have to be blameless to be a positive part of the recovery process. Um, it, that is, it's not as if they have to have done everything perfectly. So I think that's really helpful. And then I think finding a team also can help family systems resettle into, you know, 
the, the mom often, although it could be either parent, isn't the one who's trying to be the emotional everything for their child and the perfect dietitian for their child and cook just the right meals for their child and, you know, worry about attention given to the ill child being taken away from other healthier siblings. I, I think having a team and feeling like you're all in it together really helps that process, which can be awfully hard anyway. Yeah. What about just as a friend? Like if you're, if you just have a friend that's going through something like this, what's, what would you say is supportive to friends and to, to the family as a whole? And what's not that helpful? I mean, I think it's tricky sometimes because I think sometimes when you're going through things like this, you can end up feeling isolated because people don't know what to say, you know? So sometimes you can end up feeling really alone. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, one of the things comes back to the what can we do in our homes, which is don't comment on bodies. It's so common in our society to see a friend you haven't seen for a while and go, hey, you look great, which usually means you've lost weight. If that person has been using an eating disorder or unhealthy dieting means, as if there is such a thing as healthy dieting, um, that can be a confusing message. Because in their heart, they think, I'm not healthy. I feel like crap. But people tell me I look good. Ooh, mixed messages. So stop commenting on other people's bodies. Okay. Um, That said, if you're concerned about a friend of yours who seems to have withdrawn socially from eating or seems to have gotten really rigid or doesn't look well in their body, whether or not they're officially underweight, if they've lost a ton of weight and you're sort of like, wait, where's, where did my friend go? Like, where are they? Ask. Be kind. Just say, may I ask you a personal question? I feel like I've noticed you're not emotionally here anymore, and I feel nervous about what, I, what I'm seeing. Could I ask you to tell me how your relationship with food and your body is going right now? It's not that everyone has to be like a therapist themselves, highly trained like you are. It's that they need to be given the opportunity for somebody to say, we see something wrong. A lot of my patients with eating disorders say, no one ever said anything. So I assumed I was fine. And it's so hard. I don't know if it's just our lives are in a different place now where people kind of just, well, that's their business. It's not my business. It's their business. And I think sometimes that can be true, but not in in matters of health and well-being. And, but, but it's tricky, right? Like how, how much do you want to, I guess, what you can you can put yourself out there and and say you recognize something. I guess it depends on how tight of a relationship it is. If that person feels safe yeah. in talking with you, it's just tricky. It's such a tricky situation. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think that you go charging up to a mom in the carpool line and say, "I can tell you have anorexia." Yes, because then she you know bursts out crying and she's like, "Thanks very much. I have breast cancer." Right. Um, you know, but instead, I think it's it's a gentle conversation with a friend with whom you have that kind of intimacy and that kind of appropriateness to have the conversation. And you, you make no assumptions, but you say, here's what I'm observing. I observe, you don't eat with me anymore. I observe that you, your family never comes over to our house anymore for Sunday dinner. I observe that You've been talking about a lot of food rules in your house and this new clean eating thing that you're really into. 
and that you're talking about your body a lot and how much you exercise, when I hear people observe things like that, I wonder if they've developed an eating disorder. And that has the highest death rate of any mental illness. So I just wonder if you'd be willing to tell me how you're feeling about that. That's the kind of just gentle observation. And she may say, it's ridiculous, of course I don't want to be healthy. But you've planted the seed. And they know that you're there. You're open to that conversation whenever they're ready. Yeah. And then the next move doesn't have to be like, I'll help you fix your eating disorder. It can be like, would you like me to help you find out who's a really good therapist in the community? Would you be willing to see somebody even just once? Because I've learned that one of the hallmarks of eating disorders, no matter how severe they are, is that nobody thinks they're sick enough to seek help. And that was the reason that I named my book that. No one thinks they're sick enough. When I ran acute for eight years, I would have people who could barely lift their head off the bed. They were so malnourished, who had body mass and disease in the single digits. And they would say with tears in their eyes, Dr. G, I'm so embarrassed to be here because I know I'm not sick enough. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. That's That's what I shouldn't say. But <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it is. I think it's certain point you have to be like, sweetheart, that is crazy. Yeah, yeah. That is mentally ill. Yeah. That very thought means that you're sick enough to be here, regardless of what's going on in your body. Wow. What What is the difference between um, treating people with eating disorders and other addictive behaviors or other coping mechanisms? Have you? Is there a similarity, like with recovery from drug or alcohol abuse? Or is it just its own world? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, first of all, there is no such thing scientifically as food addiction or sugar addiction. Good scientists have disproven that this exists. What they have found in both animal and human models is if you deprive mammals of a certain nutrient and then offer it in an unrestricted way, they are likely to overeat it. Hmm which makes sense as far as diet culture. You know, I'm not allowed to eat carbs. I'm not allowed to eat carbs. All I'm thinking about is carbs. All I want is carbs. My body starts with carbs. Right, right, yes. Um, So there's no such thing as as food addiction. Um, However, there are temperamental traits that can lead one to abuse drugs and alcohol and that can lead one to seek eating disorder behaviors in common. So those personality traits tend to include intelligence, hypersensitivity emotionally. These are people who glow a little extra when praised and who shrivel a little extra when criticized. Um, Those who purely restrict calories tend to be very determined, anxious, and have a hard time self-soothing so that restricting calories numbs them to those emotions. By contrast, those who purge, the classic saying, and I don't know to whom to attribute it because I heard it so many years ago, was they're attracted to complexity and then overwhelmed by it. Mm. So they just jump in there with their big hearts into the craziest social things and the the biggest work things, and they just want to fix it and make everybody better. And then they get crushed by how overwhelming it is. Mm. And those individuals tend to be more thrill seekers and also sort of be looking for that good time 
as well as a distraction, um, some place to put their kind of novelty-seeking tendencies. And so those patients are more likely to binge and purge. They're more likely to use um, the individuals who, who do purge are much more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol than patients who purely restrict. Um, in addition, various drugs can be used in the service of weight loss, and so that's one way patients get into it. There's an incredible overlap between substance use disorder and eating disorders. Uh, in sororities and fraternities, it's drunkorexia. You don't eat all day in order to save calories for the 10 beers you're going to drink that night. Uh, that has high correlation with future development of eating disorders, not surprisingly. Um, but, you know, really high overlap rates between those who abuse substances and eating disorders, and it makes treatment harder. Because if you're in eating disorder treatment and you're sort of, quote-unquote, sober from restricting, binging, or purging, you may well be drinking at night. You may well be upping the drugs of abuse. Similar to in substance use programs, you could be purging in the bathroom. Nobody's watching you. So it's easy to symptom substitute. Okay, that makes sense. And what I understand, too, is that it's tricky with alcoholism, for example. You might just decide, okay, I'm not drinking anymore, and that's the only way I can manage. Whereas with food, you have to eat food. You can't just, you know what I mean? And it's... it's um, I can see how that would make it tricky as well. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes when I talk to parents who haven't quite grasped how serious and hard eating disorders are, I use the model of alcoholism, which is more uh, well-known, and I say, imagine somebody who has life-threatening alcohol, alcohol abuse and is now sort of willing to give recovery and sobriety a try. And you say to them, great, good idea. We'll put you through a nice long treatment. Just so you know, though, at every meal for the next five years, we're going to line up your three favorite shots at the head of your place setting. So you can smell it. You can reach for it. It's right there. And if you've had a bad day at work or you've had a fight with your partner, your numbing mechanism of choice is in your face at least three times a day. Like, who could possibly stay sober? Right. But I say that's what your kid faces. Yeah. Because at every meal, they have the opportunity to restrict just a little bit or mm -hmm. to go purge. So it's an incredible challenge. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. That's a good analogy. Um, one of the other things I was curious about is when you are working with people, is there an aspect of spirituality that comes into play? Do you use faith or how... It, it, how is that used or not used? Mm, such an important question. I think when patients come to me and say that their faith is a really key value of yours, and I always start my interviews with patients by inviting them to share their values with me because then I'm less likely to be assumptive. I'm less likely to project upon them what I imagine they want if I actually ask them what they want right. out of life and out of recovery then I really do my best to connect them with, for instance, a therapist who has expertise in their chosen faith so that sacred words or familiar concepts can be woven into the therapy as they do their emotional healing. And I encourage them to reconnect with whatever aspect of their faith, whether it be formally attending 
surfaces or whether it's meditating on, you know, in a, in a lovely forest that speaks to their aspect of spirituality. So, yes, I encourage it to be brought in as an internist. I don't feel that I can step out of scope of practice and bring that to the patient directly. That makes sense. Gotcha. Um, one of the other things I'm curious about in this work that you're doing, I would imagine your own self-care would be critical. How do you keep yourself sort of feeling taken care of when you're always taking care of the needs of others and sort of making sure that they're getting that as well? I love that question, and I would be very interested to hear your response to it as well, mm. because we have to support each other on this critical topic. I made the choice a few years ago when I was feeling a little burnt out to focus more regularly on self-care. I think as much as anything, it was talking to my patients over and over about how they could make their own self-care conditional. That is, you're not allowed to uh, drive three hours and then fill up your car. You can't sing before you take a breath. That you have to incorporate personal recharge, which is different for everybody, into your daily life where you're going to get burnt out. And I think I said it enough times that I thought, oh, I might be right. Right? I know. <laughs> That's how it happens. You keep saying it, and then you're like, I, maybe yeah. I should do that too. Yeah. Right. It's so easy for us. You know, I think those of us who do live in a privileged position to have a lot of energy and to be able to work hard either within our homes or outside of them, um, we can sort of take it for granted and think, oh, my health will always be there. My energy will always be there. I'm just going to keep pushing. I'm all right. Everybody else's needs are more important than mine. And the answer is that will lead to burnout, and there's going to be a physical tell. Why wait until you're sick to be like, oh, my gosh, I should have been taking care of myself this whole time. So for me, I made the decision a couple of years ago to reframe the old biblical adage to those to whom much is given, much is expected, which always kind of got to me because I knew I had been given a lot. And that expectation piece was what kept me saying yes when sometimes I needed to say no. And the way that I reframed it, when what I like to call my neo-feminist perspective on it, is uh, mm -hmm. to say any schmuck can work themselves to death. If you were really given a lot, your obligation to yourself and to those who rely on you is to deliberately give of your energies proportionate to your values. Which means that even though I have a list a mile long of things I care about and am passionate about, my top priorities are my husband and my kids and then my clinical work and then taking care of and engaging with my work team, and then all of the other roles and relationships and things that I participate in. What it means, though, is that if somebody says, for instance, hey, Dr. G, we'd really love you to come out and speak in Oregon uh, in two months. Uh, you know, it'd be really fun to hear you speak. I may think that's a really worthwhile investment of my time. But if I'm honest about what time I expect to sort of have to give at that point, and I'm going to overdraw from what my 
higher priorities require, I have to say no. Yes. Yeah. And that gives me permission to say no because I'm saying no not because I'm selfish or because I'm lazy as some little unfortunate inner voice has a tendency to tell me, but rather because I have other places I'm required to give that energy. Yeah, I love that. There's a book I read called The Best Yes, and it's just basically that idea of saying yes to the things that are within your values and if you give all your energy away to things that aren't within that scope, then you can't say yes to the big thing, the, the really special things that you're called to do. Mm, so I like that. Thank you. It's good. It's a good one. It's just kind of a, and I, I mean, my answer to that is that it's a work in progress. You know, it's, it's, I know it to be important and I know, and I do it better sometimes than I do other times. Um, that's why I still need a big old paper calendar because I, what you were saying about when am I going to have energy? I don't want to look at a week and just have it all jammed. Like, you know, you sort of just need that yeah. time to regroup. Um, and I think just getting older makes it a little bit easier because you just kind of realize it's okay to tell people no. And if that they have an issue with that, that's their issue. That's not my issue. That's what I always tell people. That's my favorite thing about getting older is just you kind of feel a little bit more firm in your in your boots since I'm in Texas, you know, but um, it just sort of making those choices. But it is it's an ongoing process for me. It's not it's not always where I wish it was, but then also kind of being gentle with yourself where it's when it's not where you wish it was and just kind of tomorrow's a new day, you know, keep on working on it. Important point. Yes. And I'm not always good at being gentle with myself, but it's like I know that's the right choice if that makes sense. That's so powerful. That's such a powerful message for your listeners to hear and for your kids to hear because we're raising a generation who's watching us in our lives. If we make it look like you go through adult life with your teeth gritted, constantly apologizing and constantly feeling inadequate, that may not be the most inspirational thing for your children to see. Right. You know, whereas being vulnerable and saying wow, guys, I would really love to have a home-cooked dinner for you tonight, but what do you do frozen pizza? Because mommy's tired, and what I want to do is cuddle you instead of run to the store, run to make the perfect meal, present the perfect meal. I'd rather just be real with you guys, and I love you, and we're going to have pizza. Yes. You know, that's the kind of thing that's so important. And um, recognizing that everyone's self-care is different. Mine involves reading, taking walks with friends, having time to cuddle my kids, and puttering around in the garden in the spring and summer, um, those of you know, taking hikes, like, that's what's important for me, and I find that if I ignore it, my worser side emerges. Right. <laughs> you know, I get more rigid with myself, I get more rigid with my kids, I'm less gentle, and I think every time, oh, there it is, come on, recommit to what you need to do to recharge. And I think that's just the basic aspect of humanity, right? It's like we all have to just notice what that is within ourselves that we need. And it's different for everyone, you know? I mean, when you just sit, we're talking about gardening, and I, I always think, oh, I wish I liked to garden. I like looking at pretty gardens. But, yeah. you know, it's different for everybody. What what sort of recharges one person might not recharge the other person. Um, but taking the time to figure out what that thing is, you know, and just kind of noticing those moments when you, oh, I feel pretty good after doing that. I think noticing is such a powerful word. Yeah. Noticing has no judgment. It's it's just being in relationship with yourself and taking a moment, taking a breath. 
Yeah. And that's the other part with technology and Facebook and Instagram and all the things we have coming our way. It's sometimes makes it difficult to notice just because we have so much coming into our brains at such a rapid speed. And it's um, sometimes creating that space to be able to notice. Yeah, I think a lot of us use social media not to notice yes. because we're too tired to notice. But, of course, that's not good for us either. Well, I have loved talking to you today. Is there anything that I that you were hoping to share with me that I didn't ask you about? No, this was so okay. much fun, Megan. It's just what a total joy to be able to participate in your new venture. I'm loving this. Um, is there a way that people can find out more about the Gaudiani Clinic? Yeah, definitely. So we are on social media. It's various forms of at Gaudiani Clinic, which is tough. It's G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I Clinic. Um, we're also Spell correct does not like that name. I tried to type it in a few times. I'm like, oh my gosh, I am typing it correctly. Sorry. <laughs> um, also, my website is www.gaudianiclinic.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much. I have learned much more than I thought. I thought I knew a lot about this, but really, I still have so much more to learn. So thank you for sharing you. all that you know. Thank goodness for constant learning. It was yes. such a pleasure, Megan. Thank, thank you. So you. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.